This is the Bobcats, a Bob Dylan fan podcast. Hello, Mary Lou. Hello, Miss Pearl. People who usually take control and, and uh, 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 become leaders are turn out to be false prophets. Uh, for some reason, uh, this has always been true. And it's, uh, it's, true that, it's true then and it's true now. Hard to say what really causes anything to happen. Uh, I don't know if a song can really do that, but say it might, I don't know. You're the prophet, you're the uh, savior. I never know what I'm to be a prophet or, 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 or savior. I, you know, Elvis, maybe. Well, I could easily see myself becoming him, but prophet, no. I ain't no false prophet. I just know what I know. I go where only the lonely can go. Hello again, everybody, and welcome back for a very special episode of the Bobcats. As always, this is your host, Matt Steichen. Usually I have guests join me to talk about their experiences as fans and speculate about Bob himself or about long ago concerts, tours, and recording sessions. Well, today we're joined by someone who was there. He and Bob shared a best friend for many years, the late Larry Keegan. And through that connection, our guest got a behind the scenes look at Bob, the man and Bob, the entertainer. He's a musician himself whose work you can find on Spotify, Amazon and Facebook by searching his name. He's also a fellow Minnesotan, and I'm proud to call him a friend of mine, Mr. Gene LaFond. Hey, Gino. Hey, how are you doing, Matt? Look, it's uh, great to be here. Thanks for asking me. Uh, yeah, I'm doing great on this end. COVID's winding down, so I'm excited to see you again in concert and see Bob again in concert. I know you were having some issues with your hands, you know, a few months ago. Is that starting to get better? How's that looking for you? That was really scary. I, I you know, I've been playing guitar for 60 years or so, and uh, my hands started to ache real bad, and I thought it was, you know, arthritis, and I thought I couldn't play anymore. And I, I got a couple of cortisone shots and all that, and that didn't help. But I had surgery on both of my hands, and uh, I, I won't get into the details, but it's amazing. It's just helped so much. I've still, of course, I haven't been playing any gigs since the COVID thing, so I don't, you know, I don't know if I can play for three hours, but I can still play a bit, you know. And uh, and also, I kind of been playing with a keyboard lately, and uh, that's been re- really uh, inspirational because it's all laid out there in front of you, and you don't have to twist your hands into crazy shapes. To- <laughs> to make chords and things like that. So anyway, I'm doing much better. I'm glad. I can't wait to get back to, to doing gigs. They're starting to open up a little bit, but uh, not like it used to be, of course. But uh, I think it will take some time, but I'm sure we'll get back to playing as much as, as we can. Amy and I, of course. Yeah, that's great news. We love seeing you guys play. So we're Thank really you. looking Thank forward you. to that. <laughs> we're actually playing. Actually, we are playing on tomorrow, Saturday in Beldenville, Wisconsin, at this wonderful garden party for her name is Wutarina Deira, D-E-R-A-A-D. And, and uh, in, the information is put on by the Hammond Arts Alliance. It's a, a tour of her incredible, incredible magic garden. And then we're going to be playing music, Amy and I and my friend Dave Bennett, we're going to play music from five to seven. So that'll be a really a good treat outside at this beautiful garden. It's on Facebook. If you look up uh, Wutarina D-Rod, it'll be a wonderful day. And it's welcome. It's open to everybody. Great. Yeah, I'll link to it in the show notes so that anybody who's listening to this can get the information there. That's a great idea. So usually when I run into you, Gino, uh, we're either with a big group of friends or we're in a loud bar or you're ha- you're playing. So I don't get a lot of chances to just like pick your brain and ask you a bunch of Bob Dylan questions. So I'm right. excited to finally have the chance to do that. I'm here. <laughs> so music's it's been, been quite a, part- a ride. Yeah, music's been part of your life for so long. Uh, what are your first memories of being exposed to any music and then hearing music that you really liked for the first time? Well, I was in high school in the in the uh, early '60s. It went, and then the folk boom was going on. And uh, I remember uh, getting my first guitar about 14, and and we just loved to play. I had a couple of buddies that sang. We sang Kingston Trio songs and all those old uh, popular hits, and it just took off from there. We just kept playing and playing, and that was when I can first remember playing actually. And uh, you know, just it just transformed into this 
beautiful thing that's happened in my life that I'm so grateful for. Was that a, a popular trend at the time? Like right when you oh, were yeah. 14, 15 was when the folk boom was kind of kicking in in the Twin Cities? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, we had a little trio that we we, we were the uh, we had a talent show in high school and, and senior year. And we won the award for being the the, the snazziest group on there. <laughs> Just the three of us, a bongo player and uh, two guitars. You know, singing they call the wind Mariah. <laughs> I remember you telling me that you saw Bob play really early on when he was still in Dinky Town. Tell me about what you remember from that. Was he playing the typical uh kind of coffee house circuit there and playing those uh old folk covers and, and that sort of thing at that time? We used to go to the ten o'clock scholar where Bob I first saw Bob, but it was a beatnik joint. You know, we went because it was kind of hip. And you could get near beer, you know, it kind of tasted like beer, but it wasn't. And it was a, a room in Dinky Town, all painted black and full of smoke. And, uh, and you know, beat, we went to see the beatniks and they'd be seeing poetry and snapping their fingers and, 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 uh, and saying poetry. And then every once in a while, somebody would get up and play some music. And that's where I first, first saw Bob. I remember him. But I don't remember what he was playing, but I remember his old hat that he had kind of on his first album, maybe, and uh, just kind of scruffy. And he was playing, he was just banging away, and he was playing old folk songs. You know, I don't think he was playing anything original, but that was quite a long time ago. That was probably 57, you know, 58, maybe. I can't remember the dates, but uh, just before he went to New York. So probably, yeah, he graduated in the spring of 59. So it was probably like the fall of 59 when he first got to the U of M. Right, right. So, yeah, and I was in, in high school from 59 to 63. So it was in there, in that range somehow, you know. And there were other people playing, too, uh, Spider John Kerner. And, and uh, boy, I can't remember. It was so long ago, but it was a wonderful experience. I remember that. But I thought, wow, who's this guy, you know? But he had, you know, he was still Bob Zimmerman at the time, you know. Right. So when he blew up about three years later with freewheeling and blowing in the wind, do you remember that he was that same kid that you saw in Dinky Town? Well, yeah, it, it later clicked on me. Hey, say, hey, this is the same guy. I mean, I, I bought his first album. That was the, the first, my first experience with him because I'd heard something on the radio. And uh, I can just remember my folks had an old console, a big old console uh, radio record player in our living room. And I remember laying on the floor, you know, I'm 15, 16 years old. I'm laying on the floor with my ear to the speaker, listening to this first album of Bob's. It was so unlike anything I'd ever heard before. And I remember thinking, this is the brother I never had, you know, this is the guy, you know, and from then on, it was just, you know, you couldn't help but listen to everything he does. You know, it's just marvelous. So then as you uh, followed his career album by album, were you surprised? Uh, I mean, in 1959 or 60, it would have been probably hard to see the potential greatness there and that he would evolve as an artist so quickly over the next few years. Oh, sure. Yeah, that was it was amazing to watch it. It happened so fast. You know, once he went to New York and it, it just, you know, it, everything he did just astounded me. I mean, like, you know, who, who writes things like that? So you followed Bob's career through the 60s and you're in the Twin Cities uh, playing music. And then in 1969, you meet Larry Keegan. What was going on in your life at that time? And then how did you end up meeting Larry? Well, I was in college at the time at the U and that was sort of an epic journey for me. It took me about 10 years to graduate, but it was a wonderful 10 years. Anyway, um, I was at, we lived at a place uh, over near the University of Minnesota was a big old flop house that we converted into little apartments for a bunch of friends. And, uh, and we had a lot of parties there. And one night I met Larry there. He was uh, in a wheelchair at that time, of course. And we just hit it off and started sitting down singing. We played some songs together and, and, uh, you know, enjoyed meeting him. And the next morning I got a phone call at six o'clock in the morning and he says, you know, this is Larry. And I said, yeah. He says, you want to go to Mexico? And I was on spring break or something. And I said, well, yeah, I'd like to go to Mexico. He said, when are you? I said, Where, when are you going? He says, in about an hour. So that was it. We, uh, I jumped in his car. And he had a driver, of course. And we drove all the way to Guadalajara, Mexico. And uh, 
we're friends ever since, you know, was he already going down to Mexico for medical care at the time? Well, he had a resort down there for people with, with disabilities and uh, spinal injuries and things. And it was a place where, where people would come and, and they could get help down there very reasonable in his little resort. And they could, you know, discover how they're going to live the rest of their lives, you know? And uh, it was actually, uh, there was a movie called uh, Born on the Fourth of July, I believe. There's a little segment in there that talks about uh, a place that's similar. And that was based on Larry's, Larry's uh, resort down in Guadalajara. He did that for several years and uh, it was uh, a wonderful thing. And that's, that was the first time I had ever gone to Mexico. I couldn't read a sign. I couldn't do anything. It was just so, so incredible. And uh, so we, I helped him drive down there and we ended and I ended up taking the bus all the way back from Guadalajara. It was quite an experience. <laughs> so at what point did he mention to you that his best friend was Bob Dylan? Well, probably pretty early on. I'm certainly on that trip. And he knew that I was a big fan already. And uh, we, you know, we were singing songs together and, 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 uh, and just learning how to perform together. And we'd go out and he'd do, we'd do uh, benefits. You know, he, he'd go out and try and cheer people up. He couldn't scratch his nose, but he could, you know, he'd want to go out and sing for people. And uh, it, it was very inspiring. And, and everyone who knew him was just so inspired by his, his courage and his strength and will to uh, carry on. You know, he used to say, uh, one more day, you know, one more day, you know. <laughs> and he made it 40 years in a, in a wheelchair, which is a, a kind of some sort of a world record. But, but we traveled all over together and made so many friends. And a lot of people traveled with him because he always needed someone to go along. He had an attendant 24 hours a day, but he also needs somebody to, you know, okay, can you go get me a Coke in there and, you know, things like that. And, and uh, so it, it was very symbiotic, I think is the word in many ways. Right. I've, I learned a lot about his story from uh, hearing you perform songs that you wrote with him, uh, mm-hmm. really stories of perseverance and not letting your circumstances stop you or slow you down. And it's kind of a cliche for someone you know, with a disability, who's in a wheelchair that, oh, well, he's an inspiration. But I mean, it must have been uh, for you, just like a daily reminder of a daily reminder to live life to the fullest and uh, be appreciative of of what you have. Exactly, exactly. When you see what he had to do just to get up in the morning and get into his wheelchair and go about and do his things. And it didn't slow him down. He just he just moved forward. He 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 was always uh, going somewhere you know it was uh and it was always at a health risk too because he was constantly getting things that would would end him up in the hospital for six months and we'd say oh man you know that's it and he bounced back and we'd end up in belize somewhere and <laughs> he's a he was a marvel and, uh, and and a true inspiration to many many people do you think for music that was a way for him to connect with people and kind of make them forget about his disability Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, he, he wanted to, he didn't want to draw attention to his wheelchair in any way. I once suggested we were going to play the Bridge Benefit concert in San Francisco, Neil Young's Bridge Benefit concert. And I thought, wow, it'd be cool to get him one of those new fancy stand up chairs, you know, and uh, Bob was going to buy him one, actually. And uh, and I thought it'd be cool if we, ro- if we rolled him up onto this onto the up to the microphone and then it uncurls and he stands up at the microphone and he's, Oh no, that's just, I don't want to draw that much attention to myself. I just want to sing the song. I always wanted to put streamers on his wheelchairs. You know, <laughs> he didn't want that. So we, yeah, we started playing, singing songs and going out to, to, to places to uh, mostly, uh, you know, little coffee houses and things like that. And, and then people would join us. So, it wasn't just he and I'd be several people over the years, you know, be people we call ourselves the, the mere mortals because Bob, of course, was immortal <laughs> at that point in my life anyway. So we called ourselves the mere mortals. And, and that was a, a, a fluid group of people. People would come in and out all, all the time, you know, but wonderful experience. People who listen to this show are probably pretty big Bob Dylan fans, and they might be familiar with Larry's story through mm-hmm. uh, Bob's story. Um, did he ever talk to you about 
what happened when he became uh, paralyzed? What did he ever tell oh, you yeah. about that? Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, it actually inspired me uh, to write a song about it. And uh, it's called Pick Me Up. It was, uh, I think it's on one of my CDs. Yeah, I'm sure it is. But anyway, he, he, uh, he was in a diving accident when he was 16. He was down in Florida. And he's, this other guy, the young guy, was jumping off this wall into the water. And Larry says, wow, that looks like fun. He was always doing daring things. So that looks like fun. The guy says, yeah, he just jumped in the water. You know, well, he didn't realize that you have to wait for the water, the water to rush in, the waves to rush in so that the water be deep enough. Well, he dropped, he jumped, he dove at the wrong time, jumped, dove into three feet of water and broke his neck. That was it. And he was laying there waiting for someone to pick him up, you know, turn him over. And somehow... They got down to him and rolled him over, and and uh, that that was uh, the beginning of his his uh, parallel parallel situation. You know, I wanted to read something that I found in uh, something called Mouth Mag, which is a disability rights magazine. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but I wanted to hmm. just read this paragraph and then see if you can tell me if you remember this. It says, "One time in Mexico, Dick Cohn and Gino stood him up." threw his arms over their shoulders and just stood there. Keegan's legs shook as three buddies stood around that jungle campfire. He said, man, I can't tell you how good this feels. That's how I knew he was six feet tall. His friends held him up for as long as they could. The ache in their muscles reminding all three that he couldn't stand, couldn't walk. And at any moment, it's back to the chair forever. But the three of them stood near the fire, shaking their fists at that bully disability. Boy, that's a memory that I had forgotten that. that I think that was in Belize. We were down in Orange Walk Town. Wow, that's really powerful. That's really powerful. We actually, uh, I remember taking him out to the to Ambergris Key. We flew out there, a bunch of us in a small plane. I think there were 14 of us. We, we chartered a plane to fly out to Ambergris because we wanted to get in this beautiful water on the Barrier Reef. And we brought Larry down to the beach and struggled to get him through the sand in his wheelchair, got him to the edge of the water. And we put a inner tube around his, his shoulders, under his shoulders, and we took him out of the water and we put a mask on and a snorkel. And we, and we, excuse me one second. And we tipped him up into the water so that he could see like he was snorkeling and we led him around like that. And, and he would kind of, he would kind of mm, say something because he couldn't talk, of course. And we'd tip him up and he'd get his breath and clear his mask. And then, so we actually snorkeled him around this barrier reef for about a half an hour in Belize uh, on Ambergris Key. And, you know, this is one of those, this is a, a typical, incredibly inspiring moment that we had together. You know, that was Dick and, and me too, Dick Cohen and myself. And, uh, and his helper. Yeah. Those. <laughs> yeah, when I read that paragraph, I just thought like, what is, wow. what a story of friendship. He wasn't just inspiring you, but I mean, you, you had to be inspired by him and he had to be so appreciative and, and value so much what you guys did for him, you know? Well, yeah, it was certainly mutual in a lot of ways. He, we, he inspired us and, 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 and we inspired him just by encouraging him to, to keep going. You know, he would, he, he, it was so nice to go to Central America with him because he could speak Spanish so well. And uh, he knew, he knew how to get around and how to uh, navigate, a, you know, a foreign country that we didn't know anything about. So, you know, he, we would fly to Cancun with, a, with 10, 12 people and meet him and he'd take us down to the, to the jungle. And, uh, into Belize and Tikal and all over, uh, all over Guatemala and, and uh, Belize especially. But uh, yeah, he was amazing. <laughs> so in the fall of 1975, Larry calls you up and what does he say? He says, Gino, I was living out in Cocado at the time. He says, Gino, he says, get ready. We're going on the road. We're going out east. And I said, what's going on? He says, there's a circus going on. Bob's got this show going on. It's called Rolling Thunder. He said, I want you to go with me and we're going to have a, a, a wonderful time. And I said, yeah, hell, I'm going. I'm, I, you know, he picked me up and we drove all the way to the to the uh, to Worcester, Massachusetts. 
in uh, in his handicapped van. I think we drove straight through, of course. And it was about eight, nine o'clock at night. And uh, we walked into this theater at, at in Worcester, Massachusetts. And there was Bob on stage with everybody in his in his makeup singing like a shaman i mean it was just blew me away and it was so lucky and then and it was a, a credible concert and then the next the next day we stayed right with uh, with everybody there and uh met him the next morning and uh met oh so many people scarlet and ramble and jack elliott and uh and joan baez and joni mitchell all these people were there and uh it was like being in a, in a dream you were familiar with Bob's work up to that point. What were your thoughts when you walk into the back of the auditorium or the venue and see him in the white makeup and playing with kind of uh, an exuberance that he'd never played with before? I mean, what, what exactly. were your thoughts on him as a performer when you saw that? Well, I, I mean, I had seen other concerts before, but nothing like this. This was so special. And Scarlett on stage, just, just uh, playing her heart out on the violin and, and everybody with him supporting him, the whole band, you know, was just, they were just on fire. And uh, I, I think in my mind, of course, you know, I'm prejudiced, but I think that was a peak, peak time in his career as far as he looked so great. You know, he was young and full of energy and all, all those people were just so enthralled by the whole process. And of course, playing his music too. You said you were staying with the Rolling Thunder group kind of as they went from town to town. What was... Right. Uh, what was Bob's uh, attitude toward you guys kind of as Larry's crew that was tagging along? I mean, I would imagine being from the Twin Cities, being a few years younger than him and being a friend of Larry's, he was probably pretty relaxed around you and pretty welcoming. Yeah. And nobody knew who we were, but we were, you know, Larry and, and, my, and myself were there as Bob's guests. So they treated us like, of course, they treated Larry like like a king. You know, he was in a wheelchair. Everybody just was so went out of their way to be extra nice to him. And I happened to be standing next to him most of the time. So I got, I was really lucky. And, and that's the way it was always. Cause they knew that, that this was Bob's friend. Larry was Bob's friend. And, and, you know, we, we got the, the Royal treatment the whole time, every time we went out and, and Bob was, you know, Bob was always so busy doing things. And anytime he was out in, in, uh, you know, public where we were actually where everybody was, People were always trying to get to him, you know, so he, he, but he was always friendly to us and always wanted to stop and chat and and, uh, talk to Larry and ask him what's going on. And and he'd always give him every time after 15, over 15 years, whenever we ran into him, he'd give me a little hug and say, you know, how you doing? And it it was, he knew we weren't trying to get anything, you know, and uh, that really made a big difference. I talked to you last year when the Rolling Thunder uh, Scorsese movie came out and your guitar makes a cameo in that movie. So can you <laughs> tell us that story about that guitar, how it ended up in the movie and then like the show to show travel where it ended up where, you know, Bob would be riding in the van with you and Larry. Well, it, there was a film crew all at all times during this whole thing. Uh, well, not at all times, but most of the time they were setting up scenes and doing things for Ronaldo and Clara. And, uh, he never knew what was going to happen. One time we, he said, go in this restaurant and sit there and I'm going to come walking in, you know? And so we we're sitting in this restaurant, nobody else in the place. And the film crew is there. And uh, Larry and I are kind of pretending we're having breakfast and they see Bob and Larry sees Bob come in the door and his attendant, his name is Alfonso, I believe took him and wheeled him around and followed Bob around the room as Bob walked about 10 feet in front of him. And Larry's saying, Thanks for getting me on my feet, Bob. You know, just silly things like that, you know. But that whole scene with the with the but with the Larry's van, we were going to the next town. We just met Scarlett. We we're going to the next gig. And uh Bob said, I'll ride along with you guys. And he said, and uh, he said, I'm gonna bring a film crew. So he had we had this van and Larry's in the back and Bob's sitting next to him, and a cameraman and a light guy sitting. I was driving the van. These guys are sitting right behind me and Scarlett's sitting there in the corner too. And we're driving along and talking, going to the next gig or something. And, uh, and he pulls out my guitar was laying back there and he pulls out my guitar, which is a 1962 Martin D 28 that my parents gave me when I was 17. 
So they sat in the back and started strumming and the cameraman is rolling and they're singing my cheating heart together. You know, that's and that he saved that for what is it? 40 some years and put it and put it in that film, in that uh, Scorsese film. So my guitar is uh, more famous than I am. Here, I even have it close. You can see it. There this it is, is the one. It's a beauty. That's the one. I may donate it to the Tulsa Museum. <laughs> so how did uh, being around Bob uh, backstage, you know, did it humanize him? Did it change your perception of him as a regular person? Well, I know when I first met him on the Rolling Thunder tour, it was like, you know, here's a here's a guy that was I, I didn't even I didn't even realize he was a human being at the time, you know, because some who can write that kind of music. And I remember meeting him afterwards when I got back home and it really inspired me to I, I didn't write a lot before then. I sang a lot of other people's songs and, and uh, it inspired me to 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 uh, just try it, you know, just try and write songs. I, re I realized he's just human. Hard to believe, but he's just this human human being, you know, that that he just does his thing. And he said to me, don't try and sing like me, sing like yourself, you know. And uh, it really inspired me to start writing from that time on. And it stuck with me, you know, you just got to sing like yourself. Yeah, I mean, I listened to your music before I ever met you. And I think the thing that your music has in common with Bob's other than just being kind of a classic singer songwriter acoustic thing uh, mm -hmm. is that you both sing from your own unique points of view. You get to, I, I feel like I got to know who you are and what you stood for through your music. And mm -hmm. uh, you bring the listener into your world and sing from your own perspective. So uh, is that, mm -hmm. that's probably that you said, Bob kind of gave you the advice to do that. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, it, it was a realization that, that this this is something that you know I could I could try you know I try, had to uh, you know it took me a while to get confident I remember being really really afraid to sing anything of my own to, to begin with but but it really did inspire me because that's what he did with so much confidence you know when you hear his music it always sings with confidence total confidence and uh, I, I I'm sure I got a piece of that from him anyway. And he's such a good storyteller too. And I, and I love story songs. I love writing story songs too. So yeah, he, uh, he definitely pushed me in that direction. And it, it, and in many ways it changed my life. So you went on the rolling thunder tour in 75 and you said it was pretty much about the next 15 years or so that you go on tour with Bob periodically. I also right. remember you telling a story one time uh, during a show about uh, being at the infidel sessions. So were you also at quite a few recording sessions or was that a rare thing? No, that was a that was a rare thing. Um, I don't know why we went. I went flew out to New York and met Larry. They were hanging out together, and Bob was working on Infidels at this. Uh, I can't remember the name of the studio, but yeah, I, I think I was there just for a few days. And he's, you know, we went up to the studio and sat out in the lobby, more or less, and. Uh, and Bob would go in and, and add something to an infidel song. And we would sit out there and try not to be too, too obvious. And Bill Graham was there and, and uh, oh, a couple other people I can't remember, but um, we were just hanging out, trying not to get in the way. And uh, there would be a time when he would have to come out and sit for a while while the engineer made some changes or something. And uh, he'd sit and play backgammon with Bill Graham and, and, uh, chat you know and and then he said we're, we're just hanging out and he said come on in here i want you to 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 uh listen to something and so we went into the control room and uh the engineer put on a tape and it was uh bob singing um angels flying too close to the ground i'd never heard it before for some reason a willie nelson song anyway i i uh we listened to it and i and he he was singing with, uh, oh, I can't remember now. Anyway, he, it, it was really a wonderful recording. And when it got done, he says, what do you think of that one, Gino? And I said, oh, Bob, that's the best song you've ever written. <laughs> and he said, I didn't write that. That's a Willie Nelson song. <laughs> oh, man. I was so embarrassed. But, <laughs> but he never released it in the U.S., I guess. I think it, it maybe released it in Europe, but anyway, that was a, a funny moment. <laughs>
1981, uh, Larry joined Bob on stage uh, in Indiana and played No Money Down, and Bob played saxophone. Were you there for oh, that? Oh, it was Indiana. That was Indiana. Yeah, was it? it was okay. in Indiana, yep. Were you there for that trip or not? I was not. My friend Paul White was there, and I think he videotaped it. I think some of that video is still around, but it was the first time that Bob had ever played saxophone, and the last time, I believe, yes. that he ever played saxophone. If you want but to call it, it playing. No, no, he was just honking. He was just <laughs> honking, and... And like Larry, it fit perfectly, of course. And and it was the encore of the show. And he brought Larry out, and uh, the whole band was there, and the and the uh, backup singers were backing up Larry, singing "No Money Down," which was one of his favorite songs. And the thing that really struck me and humanized Bob in a lot of ways is that when they were done, and they of course got a, a great ovation and everything. When they were done. He didn't wave somebody in to wheel Bob off the stage. You know, he actually uh, took Larry's brakes off and wheeled him off himself to the sideline. So I thought that was a really special thing to show their friendship. So when you were on these tours with Bob, um, what was the vibe around it compared to Rolling Thunder? I mean, I would think it would be less chaotic because there weren't as many acts. What's the daily routine like when you're traveling with Bob? Do you get to see him a lot or is he pretty like to himself over the course of a day? A lot of t- there, a lot of time, everybody's just resting between gigs. And uh, the uh, routine was we knew what Bob's last song was every night. And we knew that his routine was to throw a towel over his head and run to the bus as fast as possible and get the hell out of there and go to the next town, you know. And we knew what the last song was. So we would go get in Larry's van and get behind the bus and and follow them to the next gig. And Larry and Bob would talk on the CB radio back and forth because Larry couldn't get Larry wheelchair in Bob's bus. So and Larry needed all this stuff, of course. So they would talk and chat and then pretty soon everybody fall asleep. And then you drive for four or five hours and end up at some obscure motel. And uh, 
And then nothing ever happened till about one o'clock in the afternoon when people were getting up, getting ready, just walking around outside in the parking lot and hoping to hoping that a horde of people haven't found us. You know, and uh, and then they go and do the sound check and do it again, just from town to town. Another thing that in all the hotels, Bob never wanted air conditioning. He wouldn't stay in a hotel that had air conditioning because he didn't like it. It screwed up his his voice for some reason. So, yeah, that was kind of a unique thing where most of us were just dying. We're down south in the Georgia. <laughs> we're wishing we had air conditioning, but he wouldn't allow it. Through all these years, uh, 70s and 80s of, of going with Larry to tour with Bob every once in a while and playing shows with Larry, uh, did you have a pretty flexible work schedule? How were you able to do those things? Well, I, I was, I was, uh, I was a real estate appraiser. That appraiser, that was my uh, career job, and uh, I worked for myself. And these are just the kind of things you didn't turn down. You figure out a way to go for it, you know. And, and uh, luckily, I could go for, you know, a week or so at a time, and uh, and ex- experience the whole thing. All the different band members over the years. It was fabulous, you know. It was a real, uh, you know, thanks to Larry. Thanks to Larry, that's for sure. Bob played the Bridge School benefit uh, that Neil Young hosted, I believe, in 1988. And oh, was uh, it? yeah, I went and looked, and then you and Larry were on the bill in like 90 and 91. Uh, tell me about uh, how you got set up to play that gig and then that, about that experience, because that was in front of like 20,000 people. <laughs> so that was a whole different beast for you guys, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I had seen the bridge benefit in, in, uh, it was in Oakland the year before and, uh, there weren't any wheelchairs on stage. I knew it was a benefit for, for disabled children. And I went back to the cities and talked to Larry. I said, man, we should, we should play that. You know, we should figure out, let's send them a couple of our songs total, you know, who knows if, if they'll even look at it, but let's send them a couple of our songs and, and see what they think. So we sent them a tape and uh, I'm sure that Bob said, that, you know, you should book these guys. I'm sure Bob had something to do with it. probably Mark Perkansky, who knows. But anyway, we got a, a notice back that said there will be two, three airplane tickets for you. And we want you to come out and open the show. For the, for the bridge concert, 30,000 people at Shoreline Amphitheater, outside, wonderful. And it was a evening of songwriters. And uh, so a lot of it was stripped down to just bare, bare uh, instruments, not big band things. And they met us at the airport with a limousine and took, us, took care of us all the way through. And uh, uh, we opened the show two years in a row, which I thought was nice. It wasn't just a one-time wheelchair thing, you know, and, and there were kids on stage in wheelchairs both times, which, which was really, you know, we kind of pushed them to do that. And, uh, I think, oh yeah, Cheech Marin was the master of ceremonies. I remember him in, uh, introducing us and we had just it was the, the uh, Halloween snowstorm in Minneapolis. We had just spent four hours on the runway waiting to get out and praying that we could get out, you know. And somehow we flew in and I remember Cheech Marin saying, just in from a blizzard in Minnesota, you know, Larry Keegan, Gene LaFond. And uh, and the people were just wonderful. They Right from the beginning, they got into the music. They weren't, you know. They were really surprised, and uh, it was a very powerful moment. Of course, seeing Larry perform is was always a powerful thing. So, and then we did it again the next year. When, in fact, it was more somber the second year. Uh, Bill Graham had just died in a helicopter crash, and uh, he was. They were great friends, uh, Neil and and Bill Graham, and uh, so it was more somber, but but intense too. I remember Neil singing a. Uh, song on his pump organ uh, long may you run i think was the song that he played and and they just treated us so kindly it was just an incredible experience it was so a lucky. really a really impressive bill jackson brown elvis costello don henley willie nelson and of course neil young and you and larry i remember standing next to to neil back just at the edge of the stage uh, watching uh, elvis costello perform and he and neil was going wow this is like this is like Brian or Keats or somebody. He was so impressed by it. And everybody was so nice. I, I, I have a picture of uh, 
all of us kind of huddled together around Larry. I don't know, I, I don't know where that picture is, but I know I have it somewhere. It was an incredible experience. And around that same time, you guys opened for Bob at the Orpheum in Minneapolis. Can you tell me about how that happened and what you remember from that? Yeah, I don't know how it quite happened. Bob was, I, Larry used to live in this house in St. Paul, actually on LaFond Avenue, which was ironic as heck. And, and Bob came over just before he was going to, he played five nights at the Orpheum. And uh, somehow he said, why don't you guys open? He did, at that time he was using opening acts. And uh, he said, why don't you guys open for me? And, and we said, well, you already got, uh, what's the name of the band? That, oh, I can't remember. Anyway, they said, well, we'll cut those guys short and you guys can come out and, uh, and uh, play, you know, two or three, three, three or four songs, you know, so. You know, we were so excited, of course. And and uh, so we rehearsed, rehearsed. He says, I'll send Tony over to the house to play bass for you guys, Tony Garnier. And uh, so he came over and rehearsed the songs that we were going to do. And we remember, we went to the venue. I remember the, the, the backstage at the Orpheum. And I walked in the, the back door. Bob had given us his dressing room because he didn't need, he knew Larry needed a place so Bob gave us his dressing room, and I walk in the door carrying my my Martin, my guitar, and uh, the guitar tech grabbed it out of my hands. And he said, I'll take care of this for you. And he put it up on his rack, and he cut the strings off and put new strings on it, tuned it all up, and set it next to Bob's guitar on the rack. You know? <laughs> I thought, am I dreaming all this? What's going on? So... So we went out and sang a few songs. I, I think I went out first and I sang an old song called Mississippi River Song. And then Larry came out and a couple other friends, Sid Gassner and uh, a couple other people played with us. We, the Mere Mortals played. And uh, they had cut the opening band uh, short so that we could come out. And they were really mad at us. But uh, but and Tony came out and played with us. And it, it was a, you know, what was it five nights at the at the orpheum it was just an incredible week as you can imagine you know and we had we always had laminate passes we could go everywhere we want anytime we want over the years you know the the seas would part for us because we had these passes you know it was like magic you know? and uh one thing bob i remember bob remembered it or told me he's look out for those front row people He's, they're all crazy. <laughs> they're even those front row people. And of course, we've gotten to know many of them, including you and the Perkanskis and uh, Glenn and Madge and, and all those people. And, you know, the front row people are most fun people we ever hung out with. So, um, Amen. Amen. <laughs> told me you got to go to Bob's farm one time, which is insane. Yeah, Tell me about that. That was right around that time. I can't remember the dates, but I, I reflect everything back to 1985, but I don't know why, just because it works. Anyway, it was New Year's Eve, and Bob says, let's have a little party. How about you go get uh, Spider John Kerner and Tony Glover and bring them out, and we'll have a New Year's party, you know? So he hadn't seen those guys since probably, you know, when he left to go to New York or, when, you know, when he when he when he uh, changed his name anyway. And I mean, you know, he, so we went and found him, we found Kerner and Glover and uh, packed him into the van and drove out. He's got this beautiful farm out west of the cities. And uh, so we had a, just a wonderful, wonderful evening. He sat around in a, in a circle with Bob and Larry and Tony and John Kerner and just told stories and talked and talked and talked and, and, uh, you know, about midnight, everything was exciting. And uh, we were into drinking a little bit of something or other. And and I somehow I, I got the courage to go pick up my guitar and pull up a chair in this circle. And we started singing. Larry and I started singing. And and Spider John sang, too. And uh, I think Tony played a little harp. And uh, and Bob went and picked up this ancient, beautiful Martin guitar and and accompanied us as we sang, you know, he knew that he knew a little bit of the songs, you know, and uh, he didn't play any of his songs. He would never do that. He'd never play any of his songs. Uh, although he did one time, <laughs> just remembered. And it was just a special evening. I mean, my feet didn't touch the ground for two weeks. You know, I was so excited. It was a wonderful evening and he was just open and friendly and 
We had a wonderful time. I don't know what year it was, but I'm sure somebody does. You probably do. (laughs) What was the one time that he did play one of his songs? We were rehearsing for a gig at the Extemp. Larry and I and Scarlett, I believe. Yes, Scarlett had come to town to play with us. And we were rehearsing uh, the night before at uh, a, a geodesic dome that Dick Cohn had as a model. that he, he sold geodesic domes at one time. And so we went out there and rehearsed in this. It was actually a garage that had been finished into a big office space. And... Uh, so we rehearsed out there and uh, Larry was supposed to meet us. He, he, he was late and Scarlett, he was with Scarlett and he told Bob where it is. So Bob showed up, but Bob showed up early. Larry hadn't gotten there yet. And we're in there playing and, and, and he's sitting there listening and chatting and, and, uh, and then he walks up, walks over and picks up a guitar and, and says, you ever hear this one, Gino? And, I, and he started playing something. And for the life of me, I can't remember what the song was, but it was, you know, another one of those incredibly special moments that was, and, and then, and then he, you know, a little while later he left cause Larry, Larry was late. So he didn't, so Larry didn't get to see him or hang out with him that night, but, uh, but that's the one time he played something for us, you know? So you played with, you played as the mere mortals uh, for many years until Larry died in 2001. Was that sort of a transition period for you to kind of moving on uh, with the with the rest of your music without Larry? And I had I had I had known uh, Willie Murphy for a long time because I'd seen him play everywhere in the cities on the West Bank and everything. And somehow I got up the courage to go over to his house one day. And uh, I said, you know, maybe, Willie, would you listen to these songs? Maybe I'll do a demo of a couple or two or three of them. And so I sat in his porch and I sang these songs that I had written. And uh, I remember distinctly, somebody hollered out the window next door, good songs, man, good songs. <laughs> and Willie says, let's just make a CD. Let's just make an album. You know, he said, I, I'll help you do that. And uh, so that was the start of it. And uh, he, he knew all the best musicians in town. So when you, you listen to those two albums, you're going to hear Willie Murphy all over him because he was such a good producer and arranger you know these songs were things i i had written on acoustic guitar you know but when you listen to those cds they're they're just all these wonderful musicians that he pulled together to play with on these songs and uh, yeah we spent a couple of summers in his studio uh, working on those songs and uh, dan lund and oh he's an incredible guitar if you hear the electric guitar on those albums it's all dan lund and willie does some of it too because he plays keyboard and bass and and he was engineer. He could and he could get all these people together. So that, that's how those albums happened, and that's how that all started. You know, after all those years of playing live, was actually putting some of your songs onto albums something you aspired to do? Oh, it was magic because you know I I, I love singing solo. I love singing. You know, I love singing harmony and. But Willie was such a good producer, you know, I'd say, well, gee, wouldn't it be nice to have horns in there? And he'd say, okay. And I call up somebody and he'd bring up, he'd bring somebody in that was just top notch musician in the cities and, uh, and fill it all out and make it come alive. You know, that was his, his knack. And when you listen to him, you can hear Willie all over because there's a lot of piano in there and that's him and bass playing. And he was a man, he was a, I really miss him now. You know, I don't, I'm kind of lost without someone to, I'm not an arranger, you know, I'm a, a, more of a simple songwriter. Does that sort of cater to your uh, current operation as a dynamic duo with Amy? I guess you guys oh. sound so great together and it's, you know, a nice, efficient two-person operation and you, you guys sound great. So it's kind of a nice uh, way for you to keep gigging all these years now. Thank you. Absolutely. And I've always wanted, I always love singing harmony. But I was I had a band uh, for a number of years called the Wild Unknown, and those guys didn't sing; they just played, and, and so I didn't have any chance to sing harmony. But then, then I met Amy, and uh, it was just a, opened up a whole new experience for me because we both can sing harmonies good, and we both our ma- our voices seem to match up in a special way. That's that's uh, that's how that all happened, and it's just uh, it's just a great experience singing with her. 
people love our harmonies. <laughs> We've got one CD out called uh, The Northland Sessions, and we're working on number two. Got a bunch of songs written for that. Just can't quite figure out when and how to do it, you know, with the whole COVID thing. And nobody has a CD player anymore. So, <laughs> you know, the next step, we'll have to figure that out. Uh, in recent years, you've also gotten to do kind of mini Rolling Thunder reunions with uh, Scarlett oh. and Ramblin' Jack oh. Elliott. What's that been like to kind of reunite with those guys and get to play with them? The first time it happened, I think, well, we played in Minneapolis uh, once. Scarlett came to town and we practiced and we learned and we played a lot of Bob's songs, mostly Bob's songs, a few of my songs. And uh, and we uh, got invited to do the uh, Dylan days in, in uh, Hibbing. And uh, so we went up there and we got to play on the stage where Bob started at the Hibbing High School. Beautiful place with million dollar chandeliers. It's just an incredible place with great sound. And I had we had been working with my band, The Wild Unknown, and uh, walked on stage and there was Scarlett and we got to sing all those songs together. I got to sing them. She was there just cooking on her violin. And uh, it was an incredible experience. And we did that, I don't know, maybe half a dozen times more for benefits for the Armory in Duluth and uh, for Dylan, Dylan Days in Duluth, Dylan Fest, they call it now. Yeah, Scarlett's been a wonderful friend since we met her in 1975. And uh, we played... <laughs> Boy, I don't know how many gigs together. It's such a thrill. In fact, we're we're trying to get her back here in September up in Silver Bay to do a gig. Um, not not sure yet, but we're working on it. She's had a fabulous career because of her, her because of her talent and because of her connection with Bob. Of course, changed her life too. What are your uh, general thoughts of getting to be such kind of an integral part? of all these uh, Dylan celebrations and kind of uh, celebrating his legacy in Minnesota? Well, I, I'm honored. I, I just, you know, what can you say that he's, he's uh, the best songwriter of the century. And, and uh, I believe I get to sing his songs. I got to meet him. I got to meet all these wonderful people, got to travel a bit. And uh, I mean, I'm just blessed. I'm so lucky. And now, you know, I can sing with, with Amy and we can sing just about anything we've got. I think we've got 385 songs on our list of things we can get through and sing together. So I'm really pleased. I'm really blessed. There's no other word, but pure gratitude. And, and it's because of Larry, because of Larry's friendship with Bob. In fact, Dick Cohn tells a nice story when he talks about that. He says, I always carry a picture in my wallet of two guys. He says, one, the one in the picture is the most incredible person I've ever met in my life. And the guy standing next to him is Bob Dylan. I thought that was really nice tribute to Larry, you know, because none of it would have happened without him, you know. And uh, we're just blessed. I just feel blessed. All of us that got to travel with him. It wasn't just me. There were several people that would I couldn't go. So somebody else would go and, you know. It was just, what can you say? Total blessing. Senor, Senor, do you know where we're heading? Lincoln County Road, Armageddon. Seems like I've been down this way before. Is there any truth in that, Senor? Senor, Senor, sorry, Senor, Senor, I was right. Do you know where she's hiding? How long are we going to be riding? How long must I keep my eyes glued to the door? Will there be any comfort there, Senor? There's a wicked wind still blowing on that upper deck. There's an iron cross still hanging down from around her neck. There's a marching band still playing in that vacant lot. 
Well, she held me in her arms one time and said, forget me now. Senor, senor, I can see that painted wagon, smell the tail of the dragon. Can't stand suspense anymore. Can you tell me who to contact here, senor? Was a train load of fools bogged down in a magnetic field. Gypsy with a broken flag and a flashing ring. He said, Son, this ain't a dream no more. It's the real thing. Senor, senor. You know, their hearts are as hard as leather. Give me a minute, let me get it together. Just got to pick myself up off the floor. I'm ready when you are senior. Senior, senior. Let's disconnect these cables and overturn these tables. This place don't make sense to me no more. Can you tell me what we're waiting for, senor? Doesn't get much better than that, does it? As far as songwriting goes, huh? <laughs> great, great stuff, Gino. Does it sound all right? Yeah. Yeah. That opens up a whole new world of possibilities. If you can play some piano at shows. I know it's so different. It's, I, don't, I really like it because it, it forces me to slow down rather when you're playing the guitar, you're bumping along at the same, trying to stay at the same rhythm. You're playing with other people, of course, but, but the keyboard, you can slow down because I'm not that confident on it yet, you know, but I, I really like it. And I realized that, you know, just about every piece of music, of course, this is a wild generalization. It has been written for the last centuries on these 88 keys, you know, right in front of you. You know, it's, it's just, it really has opened up the, my mind to, I, I've never been a, a, a real student of the guitar. I just bang away on it and hope I hit the right notes. <laughs> and, but this has really been fun. It's really been fun to play the, the keyboard and learn. So maybe someday I'll bring it up and play it in public. <laughs> you want to play something you wrote with Larry maybe too to splice into the show? Oh, sure. Sure. I was going to, the other one I was going to sing is some get the chair. That of course was Larry was a big inspiration. I'll play that. I'll play my Martin on this one. And take my hat off because it's getting too hot. There. <laughs> I put my special hat on because it's a special day, you know, a Matt Steichen podcast. <laughs> This is going to get the big, kids, big time exposure. Uh, kids are great. Yeah, they're it's 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 summer. They're going swimming every day, going to the zoo. Yeah, they're having fun. Uh, fun. What a great family you have, man. Talk about inspiring. Well, <laughs> you you'll if you have any Twin Cities dates this summer, you'll see them. Okay, that'd be great. We're working on wrote most of this, and then I played it for Larry. It, it inspired me because. Uh, you know, he he said, well, let's change. I'll change this. He changed one word. He said wheelchair instead of uh, this old uh, world keeps on burning. So I said, well, all right, you got one. You got one word. So you're co-writer of the song that worked out that way. But this is the way he uh, it's called Some Get the Chair, which ended up to be the, the name of Larry's uh, biography, which is yet to be yet to be uh, published but they're working on it There's all kinds of prisons all kinds of jails somebody wins somebody fails in a world full of trouble i had my share some men get away with murder some get the chair some get the check. And this old world that keeps on turning. 
Just as long as there's a heartbeat within, I won't let nothing keep me down. Can't keep me down. I'll tell you my story. And I swear that it's true. Same thing that happened to me could have happened to you. But it's taught me a lesson more precious than gold. The strength and the spirit that no prison can hold. No prison can hold. on turf and the wheels keep spinning round and round just as long as there's a song in my heart I won't let nothing keep me down can't keep me down And I covered my bets. I paid all my dues. I got no regrets. You can break your body, or you can blow your mind. There's only one answer, Mister. You got to find. Yeah, just got to find. This old world that keeps on turning and the wheels keep spinning round and round just as long as there's a prayer in my heart i won't let nothing keep me down can't keep me down can't keep me down can't keep me down Can't keep me down Great stuff, thanks Gino You bet, you bet Got it, that's a that song is on I think on, on The Wild Unknowns and there's a there's a part that we recorded of Larry saying a poem that he wrote spontaneously when we brought him in to record him and the, the engineer had the foresight to uh, put a microphone next to Larry's uh, breathing machine, whatever this called, I can't remember the name of it, because he could only, after a while when he had his uh, uh, tracheotomy, he could only sing and then he'd have to get a puff of air from this machine into his lungs. And then he could sing another, you know, so he had to kind of, it was kind of a halting thing, but he wrote this wonderful poem uh, that's at the end of that song uh, called Some Get the Chair. And uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful little poem in Spanish about not giving up and, and keep on trying. And that's what we all have to do, especially after this last year, we made it. Thank God for everything. And uh, thank God for my wonderful life. Keep on pushing no matter what. You can't give up. Don't give up. Keep on going. Keep on going. Don't let nothing get you down. Don't give 
You have been listening to The Bobcats, a Bob Dylan fan podcast. You can find back episodes of the show on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Please feel free to rate, review, and share a link to this podcast with your Bob-loving friends around the world. For the latest Bob Dylan news and commentary, follow me on Twitter at Matt underscore Stike. Once again, thanks for listening, and be sure to join us next time for another episode of The Bobcats. Bobcats.